0: All right, going to get started for real in just a second. Hold tight. (laughs) <laughs> all right I'm going to be talking about a couple things today uh, mostly S5 modal logic but uh, a little bit Elon Musk and Twitter that is a uh, that is a call back to something that I'm sure most people who watch or listen to this are not going to be familiar with uh, unless Silver calls in to ask about S5 I'm actually only going to be talking about uh, Elon Musk and Twitter and related subjects uh, but of course, it has happened. Um, after looking for a while like he was going to weasel out of it, Elon is now in possession of of Twitter, uh, and various people have various takes on it. I'm going to start out by giving you mine in a sort of basic way, and then I am going to go into the real meat of this, which is that I want to talk about a really stupid article that the New Republic published about it. Um. So, what's my take in a really basic way? Well, um, on the most basic level, I think it's bad to have individual billionaires in control of um, vast amounts of the flow of information in our society. Uh, That is, of course, an objection to Jeff Bezos owning the Washington Post as much as to Elon Musk owning Twitter, but I don't like it. And uh, in some ways, I like it even less in the case of what should be neutral platforms uh like uh, like twitter uh where i think there are real and troubling issues about free speech and the free flow of information which is going to be what i'm really going to be talking about here but first so as not to bury the lead let me just talk about um what i think should happen uh you know if, if i had my way uh obviously all of this is a little bit you know it's not worth much because uh, you know the left doesn't have the institutional power for uh, what any of us wish uh, that it was advocated uh, to uh, to sort of uh, turn into reality. But if it did, what would I want to happen? Well, I would want Twitter to be nationalized. I think that um, it's really bad to enclose uh, the. Uh, um. It's uh, it's really bad to enclose our digital public square, you know, to have the private enclosure of that. Uh, I don't think that the sort of whims of tech billionaires should should dictate what's allowed and what's not allowed. Um, basically, I think, and this is very close to the headline of the article that I put out in Jackman when the deal was first announced, uh, free speech is too important to be entrusted to Elon Musk. That... You know, the the analogy that I used in that original Jacobin article back in April uh, was, look, imagine, you know, right now, as things currently stand, if you want to hold a protest march, and this is something back in 2002, 2003, I'm very old, uh, this is is something that uh, I was often involved in actually sort of helping to figure out the mechanics of because I was very involved in something called Glanawi that stood for Greater Lansing Network Against the War in Iraq. And in the months leading up to the invasion, we organized some big uh, marches and rallies against uh against the war. I was also involved in a smaller group called Direct Action that would do, you know, similar things, but generally without asking for permits. And in um in all cases, right? I mean, what did we um what were the mechanics of that? Well, uh there are certain places that you know, there are certain kinds of things you needed a permit for. That you you want to hold a rally in the steps of the state capitol in Lansing, you need a permit for that. Uh if you want to march down the middle of Michigan Avenue, so they have to they have to close down uh, so they have to close down traffic, you need a permit for that. You know what you don't need a permit for? Marching down the public sidewalk. That you can just do and um they kind of have to let you do it right if they're going to stop you, they have to you know kind of make something up and say you did it <laughs> to uh, to justify that legally later so public sidewalks, kind of by their nature are the places where people are allowed to you know hold protest marches without asking anybody's permission. Public sidewalks are places where you can pass out a political leaflet without having to ask anybody's permission to pass out a leaflet there. Uh, whereas, like, you know, actual business premises, that's like been a big issue and sort of back and forth uh, Obama era, and Trump era, Biden era, National Labor Relations Board rulings about when unions are allowed to do that and stuff like that. But, you know, public sidewalk, you can just do it. Right. If you're try to unionize the Trader Joe's, you're standing in the Trader Joe's parking lot that might be able to stop you from passing out pro-union leaflets, but if you're just standing in the public sidewalk right next to the Trader Joe's parking lot, you can pass out whatever the fuck you want, and nobody can stop you. Now, imagine that we we lived in what I would consider to be a libertarian dystopia, where, and this is an actual phrase that I got from... uh, an old libertarian book that I read with horrified fascination uh, decades ago. I no longer remember the name of the author. I think it was just called Libertarian Manifesto or something like that. But And I remember this guy saying he thinks that even the sidewalks should be privately owned. Well, think about that. Think about living in a, in a uh, libertarian dystopia where even the sidewalks are privately owned. That means that there's nowhere that you're just allowed to hold a protest march without having to ask anybody's permission first. That means that everywhere... If, um, you know, the, you could only hold a protest march on a sidewalk if the sidewalk owner gives is okay. That's what makes that, you know, that's one of the things that makes that sound dystopian for me, that from a free speech perspective, it's a complete nightmare. Uh, and how pathetic would it be? If you just said, "Well, I really hope that this public side, this private sidewalk, is sold to a pro-free speech billionaire, so we can hold protest marches there," if we lived in such a libertarian dystopia, I would advocate the nationalization of sidewalks. So, uh, for many reasons, but one of them is so we have a sort of zone of free speech. There's a place where we can hold protest marches. There's a place where we can stand and pass out leaflets without having to ask anybody's permission. And, well this is um this is like this right as long as whether you go with last week when bits and pieces of twitter were owned by blackrock the kingdom of saudi arabia and a bunch of miscellaneous rich people and holding companies or go this week where uh some of those other actors still own pits bits of it the say you know uh Elon Musk, despite his profound commitment to free speech uh did keep the kingdom of Saudi Arabia as a major investor um, <laughs> and we'll see if he gives them a board seat but um but he's but it's now the controlling share of it is now owned by musk personally and now we just have to say well let's let's hope um that uh let's hope that musk allows uh for uh you know, let's let's hope that uh that Musk allows for uh for uh robust um uh robust free speech. You know, that's a that's a dismal place to be in because even if we were talking about an alternate version of Musk who was more trustworthy than the real Musk, and I'll get to that in a minute. I think Musk is incredibly untrustworthy on free speech stuff, given his own track record of trying to suppress his critics. But even if Musk was trustworthy on free speech stuff, okay. Like, how pathetic is it that you have to rely on that? Right? the sort of individual goodwill of this oligarch, you know. This is—I uh, always think about. Um, you know, Corey Robin has a. I remember having a good line several years ago. Is talking about people saying, it's like, oh, I don't need a union because you know I get a, I, I trust my boss. I have a good relationship with him. And he always likes to quote the line from the book of Exodus, you know, then there was a new Pharaoh who knew Joseph not, right? Then, in other words, yeah, maybe this boss, but what about the next one, right? You know, that uh, what if the company is sold, right? What if, you know, this boss's asshole son takes it over, right? You need some kind of more institutional protection. And so I think the institutional protection would be taking our digital public square into public ownership so that um, the First Amendment would then apply to it. Now, I know uh, I saw somebody on uh, on Twitter earlier uh, said, oh, but with no, um, you know, with no moderation, it's all just, you know, hate speech and pedophilia and, you know, whatever on, you know, on, on Maine. And I think that's a little bit of a confusion um, because rules that robustly protect free speech doesn't necessarily mean no rules, right? Like, if your local city council has a public comment section, they can't stop you from speaking because they disapprove of the content of your politics, but that doesn't mean that you're allowed to just approach the microphone and start screaming obscenities into it. You know, there can be some rules, but what it means is that a publicly owned version of Twitter, uh, administrators would be open to legal challenges and would have to prove that they their um, moderation decisions weren't sort of politically based violations of free speech. And I think that'd be a good thing. Um, The same way that like, if you're a public university professor, uh, because you're a public employee, like there's a famous case, this in the seventies where uh, back when Ronald Reagan was still governor of California, uh, he tried to fire Angela Davis from her job as professor at the university of California system for being a member of the communist party. There was a sort of already archaic law in the book saying that communists couldn't teach it. Stay, you know, um, state universities of California, and then the courts ended up saying, no, you can't do that because, you know, Ms. Davis as a public employee is protected by the First Amendment, right? The the government, right, punishing you by firing you as a public employee for the content of your political speech violates your First Amendment rights. You, you know, then they had to come up with a different excuse to fire her and eventually she ended up getting her job back. But like, that's a small example of why that difference actually, you know, why that actually matters right okay, um so that's my position, and I don't actually think and again, I will get into this before we uh, finish for today. I don't actually think that you can trust musk as uh as long as far as you can throw him on this or much else. I think that he's a huge hypocrite on free speech issues but um but I do um. I do think that it's, um, you know, but I don't want Musk to buy Twitter, but my concern about that is, or, you know, I, I don't like the fact that Musk is in control of Twitter, but my concern about that is exactly the opposite of the concern expressed by a lot of liberals. So, in other words, I don't think that we should have to rely on the benevolence of a billionaire for free speech protections. And by the way, I I profoundly distrust the benevolence of this particular billionaire, but that's a very different thing from the concern that a lot of liberals have, where I think they're angry for exactly the wrong reason. They're angry because they think Elon Musk will allow too much free speech. And I want to look at what I regard as a particularly egregiously stupid expression of this um, by a writer for the New Republic uh, uh, named uh, Bryn Tannehill. Um, which uh, Colin, you know, this is already a beta test of the video feature. They do not yet have screen sharing, but they will soon. But right now I can't share the screen. I'm just going to have to read this aloud. But uh, Tannehill wrote an article in The New Republic. Um, this is in their uh, the soapbox. Uh, called Why Elon Musk's Idea of Free Speech Will Help Ruin America. And it's basically an anti-free speech statement, and I think that if you go through this, uh, I think it says a lot about the difference between a socialist perspective and historically – I'm not talking about Stalinism here – but historically, the better kind of socialist has cared a lot about free speech. If you go back and look at Eugene V. Debs, Rosa Luxemburg, Karl Marx, all of these people were passionate about free speech. Uh, Karl Marx cut his teeth as a crusading German newspaper editor who was fighting the censors all the time and wrote very eloquently about the importance of uh, freedom of the press. And if you read uh, Hal Draper's book, Karl Marx's Theory of Revolution, he argues that this is actually kind of where Marx's worldview was born, is out of these battles. Uh, I think what Rosa Luxemburg wrote in 1918 is maybe the most sort of eloquent uh, statement about the importance of free speech that I've read by by anybody. Um, And to me, that connection makes sense. I know it's counterintuitive to a lot of people because they're used to associating strong support with free speech with libertarianism or my least favorite free speech metaphor, the free market open marketplace of ideas um I'm not a favor I'm not a fan of unregulated marketplaces, so you know you could definitely see how somebody could say, "Well, look if you know." You want to, you know, you don't want unregulated marketplaces. Then you should also want to clamp down on the open marketplace of ideas. Again, it's a terrible metaphor, whether positive or negative, but it makes sense to me because if the core of socialist politics is that you want to empower the working class, then you think ordinary working class people should be able to run their workplaces and the larger society for themselves in their own interests, if you believe, as the uh, the great Marxist uh, writer C. L. R. James uh, famously put it an essay in 1956 that every cook can govern, then you have to have some level of trust that ordinary people can have access to all sorts of claims and counterclaims and they can decide for themselves what to believe. Because if you don't believe that, if you believe that, no, 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 what we should have is we should have um, some benevolent technocrats sifting through things to decide what people could be exposed to, because if they're exposed to the wrong things, they'll come to the wrong conclusions, then you don't really believe that every cook could govern. You believe that benevolent technocrats should govern, and frankly, fuck that, right? I mean, that's just profoundly at odds with my basic politics. So that's my perspective. And I think this Bryn Tannehill article, The New Republic, is is a really clear expression of this kind of technocratic liberal anti-free speech view. So again, it's called... um, it's called Why Elon Musk's idea of free speech will help ruin America. Um and the that's the head, the deck, right? The description at the top of the article is Twitter without content moderation, and with Donald Trump and others reinvited means that lies and disinformation will overwhelm the truth and the fascists will take over. All right, I'm just I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but I'm just gonna start reading it and then kind of pause and break it down a little bit. So Tadahill starts out quote After months of legal wrangling, Elon Musk bid to buy Twitter appears to finally go be finally going through musk and the right see this is a great thing because it will restore quote free speech unquote to twitter any the sort of quote free speech unquote they envision uh could have a highly undesirable consequences is met with howls of quote libs hate free speech unquote or other accusations of fascism similarly warnings that unfettered free speech results in dangerous misinformation spreading or derided with sunlight is the best inf- disinfected and The libertarian belief that the marketplace of ideas, the best will always win out. All right, I'm just going to pause there at the end of the first paragraph to note that this is an absolutely asinine straw man of the free speech commitment. Of course, inevitability claims the best ideas will always win out are ridiculous, but very few people actually argue that. The real question about whether we should have robust free speech protections or not is not... Will robust free speech protections always lead to good consequences, even to the extent that we're only concerned with consequences? Because, of course, it won't always. Of course, the best ideas won't end up always win out. Of course, there's no inevitability or guarantee here. But, the, but just saying that, you've only considered half of the question. The issue is, are the consequences of robust free speech protections better or worse than the consequences of censorship? And that, I think, as we'll see, is a little bit more complicated (laughs) than uh, the way that it's it's being set up here in the Sprint Tannehill article. I hope I'm saying her her name correctly. I think I am. Okay, here's what she says. Back to Tannehill. These theories will be tested quickly. It is being reported that after the sale is finalized, Musk plans have laid off nearly three quarters of Twitter's staff. Uh, Footnote, I think he's already said he's not doing that, but. That's not an important question. So let's just keep going. And one of the first things to go will be any corporate attempt at uh, content moderation and user scrutiny. Again, I'm just going to pause. I think that's false. I don't think, for better or for worse, I don't think he said no content moderation. Um, you know, I, th- I think he said much looser content moderation. I don't think he said no content moderation. Um Musk also plans on restoring the accounts of high profile sources of disinformation and violent messaging who were previously banned, most notably former President Trump. Um, that much is true. I don't, you know, I don't think any of these people have actually been restored yet, but at various points Musk has said that he would uh he would do that. Okay, back to the article. The pro Musk arguments are complete nonsense. And there are innumerable historical and modern examples of why social media platforms with nearly unlimited free speech, uh, freedom of speech, produce horrors. The Supreme Court decided free speech isn't absolute long ago when Chief Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes noted that you can't shout fire in a crowded theater for obvious reasons. Well, let us pause and talk about that one, because um, this is really, I said in the. When I was describing this episode on Twitter, and I think in the description on the uh, episode itself, I used the phrase historically illiterate, which might seem harsh. But I think the options are either that Tad Hill doesn't know the history or she's being dishonest in her presentation of it. Because let's talk about that fucking Oliver Wendell Holmes example. <coughs> it is true that Oliver Wendell Holmes said it. What's the context in which he said it? How am I thinking about that context be relevant to deciding uh, whether her historical case is convincing here? Let's just put a little pin on that and come back to it, because this is really good. If you actually know, um, people may have, you know, I talked about this in an article I wrote a long time ago for the Daily Beast, uh, like at the beginning of the year. And people may have seen me talk about this on the main show on YouTube before. So uh, this won't come as a surprise to all of you, and of course lots of people, it's a very smart audience, lots of you might just independently know this, but if you don't know it, this one is a doozy. So put a pin in that for a minute, we'll come back to it. Continuing Tannehill. First, freedom of speech has caused untold death and suffering when used to disseminate hate or spread disinformation. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion was a fabricated anti-Semitic text that purported to expose a global baby-murdering Jewish plot bent on world domination. Okay, I think the first sentence is a little much. Free speech has caused untold death and suffering, especially compared to lack of free speech? Well, we'll come back to that. Protocols of the Elders of Zion, she's right about that, but next sentence. Mein Kampf was Hitler's autobiography, which blamed Germany's post-World War I woes on a global Jewish conspiracy. Both were readily available in the Weimar Republic, which had no First Amendment per se, but guaranteed freedom of speech. They were key contributors to the fall of German democracy, the rise of the Third Reich, and the Holocaust itself. So I just want everybody to be really clear. I'm not going after some rando on, you know, who's like tweeted here. I'm This is the New Republic, right? Come on, that used to mean something. Uh, So let's really drill down on this. Tannehill's claiming that a key contributor, right, a key contributor, like one of the main reasons for the rise of Hitler to power and hence World War II, the Holocaust, the greatest horrors of the 20th century, was the fact that Weimar... Germany had free speech protections, and hence they couldn't ban Mein Kampf. So, is that true? Gosh! Did Tannehill do any kind of research on this before just asserting that that was true? I mean, maybe yes, and she's just being dishonest. My guess is that she doesn't actually know. She just assumes that that must be true and didn't bother looking this up in any way. Uh, But gosh, that is really, really not true. So Mein Kampf was published in 1925. Uh, Hitler comes to power um, end of 1932, really 1933, Um, depending on exactly how you demarcate it. Um, the first several years that my Kampf is in publication, it sells abysmally, um, at least in Germany. Uh, fun fact, by the way, uh, one of my favorite uh, novelists, and you know, I've always really liked the, the L.A. novelists, uh, so uh, a really big figure in that tradition is John Fonte. He, uh, he wrote a book uh, called Ask the Dust which is the most successful of his books. Um, and uh, one of the reasons that his career kind of stalled and Fante ended up becoming a screenwriter instead is that I, I think this has all happened in the 30s once Hitler's already in power. But um, the publisher of that book is, uh, is driven out of business because Hitler sues them. For doing an unauthorized translation of Mein Kampf, so among all, all of Hitler's other crimes, he also destroyed the career, the novelist career of John Fonte. so who had to become a, to, uh, um, a screenwriter. Okay, but uh, I want to uh, I want to go back to this. Mein Kampf sold abysmally in the first several years after it came out. It started to pick up a little bit because people were curious about it as the fortunes of the Nazi party rose, but even like the last year before Hitler came to power, it sold less than 100,000 copies in the whole country, right? The sales figures are tiny for the first several years, basically until Hitler actually comes to power. Sales figures are tiny. It only starts to sell millions of copies after Hitler is in power, after he becomes chancellor and then fuhrer. So people buy Mein Kampf in large numbers after Hitler is already running the country, because having a copy sitting on your shelf is a way of signaling your allegiance to the new regime. I'm getting this from William Shearer's book, uh, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Um, But even then, very few of the people who are buying it are are reading it. Have you ever tried to read Mein Kampf? I mean, I'm not recommending it, but uh, if you do, uh, it's not going to be easy going. You know, it's it's not the worst thing about Hitler, but Adolf Hitler was a terrible writer, like is just convoluted, horrible, almost unreadable right into the 782 pages of it in Mein Kampf. Shearer claims in Reisenthal fall of the Third Reich that um, even many dedicated Nazis would admit to each other that they, no matter how many times they tried to read it, they couldn't get through I think what Shearer calls the two 782 pages of turgid prose. So the claim that the popularity of Mein Kampf was a key contributor to Hitler's rise to power could not be more wrong. It's just laughably wrong that nobody read the fucking thing. Nobody even bought the fucking thing until Hitler came to power. Again, it was like something to keep on, you know, your bookshelf on your mantelpiece, look at what a dedicated Nazi I am. But even then people didn't really read it. It is a poorly written mess. I know it seems like I'm dwelling on this, but this is one of her key examples, right? Okay, let's um, uh, let's keep going. In modern times, lack of moderation on social media sites reportedly has repeatedly contributed to mass murder. The Christchurch New Zealand shooter killed 51 Muslims at two mosques after being radicalized on YouTube, 4chan, 8chan. killer who killed 11 Jews the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh has been radicalized in the social media site Gab, which advertised itself as a free speech alternative to Twitter. Dylan Roof killed nine people at the historically Black Manual African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, in 2015, after he self-radicalized online. Investigations revealed that Google searches stirred him further and further into extremist propaganda and hate. Okay, it's certainly true that hate crimes that are committed uh, by you know far-right ideological people that you know, there's going to be people who have a history of doing things like doing Google searches for far-right ideological material, because that's their worldview. Um, you know, similarly, the kinds of things that we th- we tend to think of as uh, lone wolf terrorist attacks, which are really just hate crimes committed by zealous Muslims who might identify with ISIS or Al-Qaeda, uh, but have no actual material connection to ISIS and Al-Qaeda, You go back and look at those people's old Google searches. You will find them searching for that material. Similarly, hate crimes. There have been several high-profile examples of this committed by black nationalists. You'll find them doing searches for black nationalist material. Um, Plenty of hate crimes uh, committed by people in all those groups. Um, You know, in in pre-online, you know, they they have to find more circuitous ways to it. But I mean, that's probably the uh, the strongest. the strongest part of um, of Tannehill's case. And I think it's pretty weak, honestly, because I wrote about this at the um, after the, the New York subway shooting, which is a weird case, especially too, because if you read The Killer's Manifesto, it's an incoherent mixture of different ideologies, which is also not surprising, because frankly, we're talking about somebody who's pretty clearly severely mentally ill. And so, um, you know, there's... Uh, yeah, there's all there's a lot of stuff going on in there, right? But whether we're talking about whatever the ideology of any particular mass shooter, um, very often it's very hard to pry apart mental illness and just sort of rage that's generated by what people's lives have been like from the particular ideological coloration that they take on to sort of justify what they're doing or that might help them direct it in certain directions – um I think the idea that you know that the, somebody's like an otherwise well adjusted person who would never who would never kill people is going to do this purely because of their reaction ideology is a little bit hard to justify, considering that it 's like point zero 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 one percent of people who are uh it, you know infected with any of these ideologies who end up doing things like this, but again that 's probably the strongest part of um uh that's probably the strongest part of Tannehill's case. I think it's pretty weak, honestly. Uh Gator don't play has a good comment in the chat, says uh, a very quick example that uh, disproves this argument against free speech is Andres Brevik. Norway did not suppress him during his trials. Manifesto remains available. He has triggered zero further lone wolves, despite the state claiming the lone wolf threat would become big, uh, has remained a zero-bound phenomenon. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. Again, I I think this idea that it's like, I mean, in a way it even reminds me of sort of um, controversies over like people listening to heavy metal music and killing themselves or um, people, um, you know, people watching, you know, Beavis and Butthead and then setting fire to their trailer or whatever, that it's like, uh, you know, again, the reactions of individuals to, um, you know, to this stuff or like whatever. There's the guy who's the uh, you know, who is like a Bernie Sanders campaign volunteer who uh who who shot a bunch of Republican congressmen and it's like is that you know, I think tr- tracing the causal connections there is a little bit tricky. I'm sure that his politics influenced his choice of target, but I also think that it's like clearly you know, not even point zero 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 one percent of people who shared his ideological preferences would do something like that. And I think there are a lot of other things going on in his life, his pre his history of domestic violence, et cetera, that are like much more correlated with, um, with committing this kind of spectacular expression of like mass violence. And so again, I think maybe the ideology helps direct the target, but it's not really the main thing going on there. Again, strongest—you um, know—strongest, um, you know, strongest, uh, strongest example, and uh, not a very good example. the The Weimar Germany claims are absurd. Again, she's just wrong about Mein Kampf and protocols. Of the Elders of Zion. I mean, you know, I think there's a much stronger case for. Although, even there, I don't know—is the level of anti-Semitism enough lower? <laughs> and, uh, in like 1918, that if it was, as soon as the Weimar Republic had started, that, uh, or 19 or whatever, that uh, they'd outlawed that book, it would have made a big difference. Not entirely clear to me. Meanwhile, though, let's talk about the other half of the equation. If you're going to talk about the dangers of free speech, at some point you've got to get around to talking about the dangers of censorship. Um, and this brings us back to the dumbest thing in Tannehill's article, the thing that pissed me off the most when I was reading this. Which is where she's doing the most lazy, cliched pro-censorship thing, which is quoting Oliver Wendell Holmes saying, "You don't have a right to shout fire at a crowded theater," without actually telling us what the context is of him saying this. So, there's a Christopher Hitchens debate about free speech from uh, 2006, um, and um, in Toronto, uh, where uh, where Peterson. Um, Peterson says, uh, or sorry, Peterson. Jesus Hitchens. Um, so, debate in Toronto that got me thinking of Peterson. But yeah, um, Hitchens has the most fun sort of opening I've ever seen of one of his debates, where the first thing that he says is "fire," and he's like, "Okay, there, I've said it." I'm not in a crowded theater, granted, he makes a show of looking around the room. I seem to have said it in the dining hall at Hogwarts, but, and then he goes into the history of it and. When Oliver Wendell Holmes said the thing about shouting fire in a crowded theater, the context of his metaphor was that he was upholding the imprisonment of a group of Yiddish-speaking socialists who had been arrested for sedition for passing out leaflets opposing American involvement in World War I and conscription. That's what Oliver Wendell Holmes was analogizing to shouting fire in a crowded theater and that's a perfect example for thinking about the extreme dangers of censorship. So, because of course, as Hitchens points out, there, given the horrors of World War One, the millions of deaths, the the deep trauma that you know actually directly led to the rise of fascism, was actually infinitely more important to the rise of fascism than w- which books. Were legally published in those countries um is the having this sort of core of traumatized soldiers who are you know came out of this experience of total war and were ready to become the shock troops of rising fascism um that given all of this as hitchens points out you could make an excellent case that yeah they were um people shouting you know uh that you know these these socialists who were whose imprisonment Oliver Wendell Holmes was upholding were shouting, were warning theater goers in his metaphor of a very real fire, right? American involvement in world war one, which is what they're opposing really was a fire. People should have listened to the warning. They should have listened to the shout of fire. And this is the question who gets to decide what counts as a real fire or a fake one. And how much do you trust them to make that decision? Now, I'm not an absolutist. We can get into this. But generally speaking, sort of basic impulses here, I, I have very little trust in any institution to decide for everybody else what counts is a real fire and what doesn't. I sure as hell don't have trust in people who are going to be much more responsive to powerful factions like corporate America, the military industrial complex. Uh, than they are to other more benevolent factions to determine what counts as a real fire and what doesn't. A couple of quick examples to get the idea across. Imagine that Twitter had already existed in 2002, 2003. And let's just stick with the category of misinformation. We could also do bigotry here and think about examples like advocates of Palestinian human rights being routinely smeared as anti-Semites, and how much you trust uh, Tet corporations to to not decide that they're right if you have sweeping rules against bigotry, but stick with misinformation for a second. Imagine that Twitter had already existed in 2002 and 2003, and they'd had the kind of harsh policies against misinformation that Tannehill would presumably advocate. Who do you think would be more likely to bounce to get bounced for misinformation? People who agreed with the Bush administration, agreed with the New York Times that Iraq did have weapons of mass destruction, or people who claimed that the Bush administration was conspiring to mislead the public question answers itself. If you don't know the answer to that question, you're a fucking idiot. I'm sorry. Um, How about let's go from hypothetical Twitter in 2002, 2003 to let's do say 2028. Let's say in 2028, some equivalent at Tesla, right? The the company where Elon Musk makes exploding cars um, that, Tesla has some equivalent to Chris Smalls. Chris Smalls, if you're not familiar with him, is the very charismatic and effective union organizer who finally, for the first time, unionized an Amazon warehouse, Assume that Tesla gets its own Chris Smalls. And this guy accuses Tesla of, some, of secretly engaging in some particularly horrifying labor practice. Tesla, of course, Tesla's lawyers accuse him of spreading misinformation. Gosh, when we're thinking, about censors at twitter who are ultimately employees of tesla owner elon musk do we want them to have a lot of power to decide what's information and what's misinformation do we want them to be enforcing really harsh policies or do we want them to be enforcing really lenient policies would we rather that they were not in the business of trying to determine what's true and what's false because every political debate is to some extent A debate not just about values but about facts does raising the minimum wage lead to more unemployment were there weapons of mass destruction in iraq you know is there some massive number of you know trans kids you know transitioners who reject their you know who regret the transition etc 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 there's always going to be a factual component and saying that twitter should be in the business of determining that is saying that you entrust for all these politically controversial cases employees of a corporation to make this decision well i do not um i think that again i think we should i think it's incredibly short-sighted and self-destructive for the, the left to root for more censorious rules and we should be rooting you know for for less censorious rules rules that more robustly protect freedom of speech um, of course, rooted for it doesn't do much good as is, but I think the real solution is to nationalize Twitter. And this is the final point that I want to make before I take any calls if anybody wants to wants to call in. I, I think we've got one call already. So um let me uh let me just uh let me just say this as the last point about this. Okay, given that I've been arguing this entire time that the left should support robust free speech protections on social media, that you know, I don't think I think it's it's tragically stupid for leftists to adopt this narrow libertarian definition of free speech where it only counts if it's the government, uh, or to say, oh well, you know, Twitter decided not to allow certain points of view is no different than the New York Times decided not to publish certain points of view. Obvious nonsense. Uh, Twitter is much more like a a delivery service, right? It's more much more like a privatized version of the post office that. Sure, might, among other things, be in the business of delivering magazines through the mail, but it's just a very different kind of thing than a magazine publisher. I mean, it's a privatized mail delivery service that decided it was not going to send Jacobin through the mail because, you know, for anti-communist reasons. I think we'd rightly be horrified by that as a free speech issue. Okay, given all that, given that I have been defending robust free speech protections, you might think, hey, I should be all in favor of must-buying Twitter, right? Because he's the big free speech guy. That's what Musk's fanboys think, that Musk is the big free speech boy. That's why they're all psyched about him owning Twitter. And that's what idiots like Bryn Tannehill think. That's why they're horrified by Musk buying Twitter. But I think they're both wrong. I think both sides of this little mini-culture war are operated from a super-duper-dubious assumption. Because um, for two reasons. One, I would, sh- I would recommend people check out what Yasha Levian has uh has written about Elon Musk. Um he's got a he's got a Substack post called Elon Musk is a spy and another one is Elon Musk is a is a military contractor, where he points out, look, this is a guy who's uh raking in hundreds of millions of dollars fitting out tech. This is a quote from Levine for the most secretive and strategically important intelligence agencies in America. He's being paid by USAID uh, who uh, he's, he's trying to pretend this is charity. They're actually paying him well above market rates from the looks of it for uh, Starlink terminals, for Ukraine, for the war with Russia. Um, he uh, has a, quote, nearly $300 million military contract to launch classified American spy satellite. He, quote, signed a $149 million deal to track missiles, a.k.a. The sky the, to spy on the sky. Uh, SpaceX, his company, is doing literally billions of dollars in business with nasa if you think somebody like that is going to say no when the national security state right who he's way steep in business dealings with asks him to censor somebody on their behalf um because he's just so committed to free speech principles i would suggest you have a charming amount of faith in the moral character of an oligarch and then what's even more disturbing is if you start, um, yeah, exactly, Turner Wood says in the Antebellum South, anti-slavery literature was widely considered shouting fire by the ruling plantocracy. That's exactly right. Um, and then if uh, what's even less encouraging as far as Elon Musk is if you look at his history of, to put it gently, not handling criticisms well. Right? Remember the guy uh the um uh the um, uh the the mine the rescue thing where uh the you know he had the botch rescue attempt and there's the guy who actually rescued the kids who uh, who referred to what Musk had offered to do as a PR stunt and Musk accused the guy of being a pedophile, paid a private investigator fifty thousand dollars to investigate him. That doesn't that doesn't strike me as somebody who's super committed to uh, allowing people to criticize him. Um, it's even worse, actually, if we uh, if we go from there to uh, to start thinking about um, you know to uh, to start you know start thinking about other cases. He's illegally fired union organizers. You know, I'm, this is not my judgment. This is the NLRB's judgment. He's fired, hacked, and spied on corporate whistleblowers who do things like showing people Tesla cars exploding that embarrass him. Uh, he's tried to dox his critics. He's even asked the Chinese government, this is all public record, to censor social media posts critical of Tesla. There's absolutely nothing in that record that should fill anybody with confidence that he's suddenly going to start, that you know when he runs Twitter, he's going to stick to his alleged free speech principles would they conflict with any of his various business interests. I don't think he is. I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think he is. So, um, free speech, good. Elon Musk, very bad. Nationalized Twitter. Uh, that is my perspective. And with that, I am going to take a call or two before I wrap up for the day. So, we have Gator. remember to unmute yourself
1: there we go hey ben how you doing good how are you yeah not too bad thanks buddy i'm kind of half and half with you a little bit on some things generally i think that you're fair to raise a lot of the things that that musk is and has done i mean on a very basic level uh, he has taken huge amounts of taxpayer subsidy to um achieve what he has with uh, tesla and also as you point out spacex is the privatization of nasa isn't it um, you know, at essentially state cost. And as you say, as a military contractor, well, what exactly is his remit? So the question I'd have about Twitter is, as a private corporation with a huge, probably quite a significant bot kind of um, ent- um, bot side to it, what's he actually doing? Well, he's trapping people in, a, in an echo, a, a, a an echo chamber or a noise space, which robs them of actually doing anything, right? Mm-hmm. and if it if you layer really tight obvious um freedom of speech issues into that obviously it becomes kind of useless to most people because they're just oh, in an even yeah. tighter echo chamber but i would argue that nationalization of it given that the freedom of speech agenda is served by the gov- it serves the government because really in covid for example you are seeing Twitter reinforce the government's line on COVID, which is patently false now and always has been. It just depended how well informed you were about COVID and the vaccines. Then you can add any political in, issue into that as well. Nationalising it only compounds that problem. Surely, particularly as a US guy of of a semi-free semi market environment, just the creation of Getter or Bastion or whatever is a better solution because you just create commercially viable alternatives
0: okay uh so a couple a couple things about this um so i want to i think kind of take the issues you're raising in reverse order and just kind of sound off on each of them quickly um i'm very skeptical about uh, the commercially viable alternatives. I think that if you have, um, I think the track record of that is not uh, is not encouraging, right? That this sort of like, oh, it's okay. I'll just go, I don't know, insert the Bender thing from Futurama. You know, I'll start my own Twitter, right? Um, I think that, you know, I think the track record of that's not super encouraging. So that's one thing. Um, I think that, um, you know, in, in fact, I think that the, um, yeah, I, I think that the you, you don't really get the sort of uh, broad spectrum of people move into any of these. Um, I don't want to get off into a whole thing about this because um, you know it's it's pretty far off track from what you're talking about. But because you did say it, I will just I will just kind of briefly note that I expect you and I probably do have considerable disagreements uh, re COVID. Although there are a lot of things that we you could be talking about there, so. Um, I don't want to presume too much, but I I think there are probably some disagreements there, but um, you know, I don't have, um, you know, but I mean, like, even though we might disagree about that example, I mean, I, I I do think that there's a sort of broader point underlying what you're saying about that, that I'm, I'm kind of with you on, right. That they, that in other words, like, look, um, even if this might not be a, an example of it to, to my mind, right. I mean, I'm, you know relatively i'm um you know relatively unfriendly to most of what i would consider to be you know conspiracy theories about covid uh it's it's certainly true that whether or not this is an example of it right i mean sure government's lie about stuff that's a that's a given right so if you're and then sometimes in fact when you're thinking about corporate censorship uh then you know sometimes that happens under government pressure right uh, and uh you know and and whether or not they are in fact lying or telling the truth about a given thing big part of my argument above is that I don't really want uh to empower censors to um make you know to make those determinations so the the real um the real question I think that's gonna be a dispute between us is is not so much um is not so much these particular examples of right is this you know is this one going to be true or false? Is that one going to be true or false? But like, is, uh, to the extent you are concerned as you should be about the government line, about stuff, um, should you be concerned that, uh, you know, and, and so you're concerned about government pressure on private actors to, uh, to, to do, to, um, to sort of toe the
1: line on that right to, to uh... well you've already well, you've already got that situation now right so so Twitter's a quote unquote private entity right who yeah. however that however that really manifests because all you need to do is buy the shares in yeah, yeah. the shares and then you have shareholder value add power right so you have yep. leverage via share ownership okay so the second thing is the government is clearly already exerting force over twitter and has been doing for a long time and that even got so extreme that Yankovic was basically saying, I'm a government appointee, but I should have power over screwing with people's mm-hmm. tweets, right? That's mm-hmm. all happening in the private sphere. So if you nationalize Twitter, you actually make that even worse. And then you end up coming yeah, down that's to the a real, a, a that's old age the, question of who that's watches watches.
0: Yeah, that's the key question, right? Like, that's the real disagreement, is like regardless of what anybody thinks about any of the particular examples, I think the real core of the disagreement is, do you think that well look if government pressure it's certainly not the only one right but if it's if it's if it's one uh, if it's one source of an impulse to censor then do you make that problem does it necessarily follow from that 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 problem of uh, sort of censorship becomes even worse if it's uh if it's brought into the public sector and i can see why you think so uh because i think you know on a sort of surface level, I mean, I totally get how the argument works, right? Say, look, I think um, here's the, you know, if, if if government, right? the If here's the bad stuff being done by the government and you want people to be exposed to that, then having it being owned by the government, right? If you're just sort of using that catch-all yeah. phrase, is is going to make it worse. Here's why I don't buy that. A couple reasons. So, um one is that I think a good example to sort of ground us while we're thinking about that is to think about public libraries, right? Those are government institutions. Uh, those, those are, um, you know, those are ultimately under the control of, of, you know, library boards, which are, you know, which are elected public bodies. Those are, uh, you know, those are taxpayer funded, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, you know, public librarians have, have been among the best defenders of, uh, of freedom of expression, and in fact, uh, if you think back to controversies about the Patriot Act, uh, a huge part of that was about uh, a different branch of the government—the uh, uh, the NSA uh, trying to, um, you know, to sort of warrantlessly look at people's uh, library records, and the librarians were the ones who were fighting that tooth and nail. Uh, very much unlike corporations like Google that pretty invariably roll over and play dead uh, when uh, when that happens. So I think that's just a sort of starting example to get us thinking about how, you know, the fact that like two things are both parts of the public sector, we can use this phrase, the government to describe them both only gets us so far when we're thinking about how they're actually going to relate to each other. So that's one question. Another question, and I raised this earlier in the discussion, is just as a matter of, of practicality in the American system, at least, uh, that you know, it's precisely the thing that centrist defenders of uh, social media censorship always say, right? What do they say? That, you know, well, that's a private company. They could do whatever they want. Oh, you ignorant people who think that there are free speech issues that have to do with anything that happens on social media. You don't understand that free speech is only about the government. You know, you're talking here about a private company, but, uh, but. That precise thing, as annoyed as it is that they say that, because again, I think if you think about why we value free speech i I would argue for a much broader sort of understanding of the concept, they're certainly right about the legality of it, right in other words, like um not only is the you know i don't know if if the uh if the New York Times doesn't publish a wide enough range of views or something, not only is that not a violation of of the First Amendment but actually the First Amendment would be violated if uh the government got involved and telling them what they had to publish. Uh because that's you know that's their uh that's their prerogative. Um and whereas again, you know, or or think about, you know, like private universities um with the Angela Davis came up thing came up, it wouldn't even be an issue. They could they can fire any uh anybody they want, right? I mean the you know religious schools fire people for heresy all the time. Uh, and it's completely legal or for violating the school's, you know, morality statement. Whereas if you work for a public school, you, you have um, now there is a First Amendment issue if they try to fire you because it's because it's it's becomes uh, part of the um, it's, uh, you know, because now if the government, you know, if you're being fired from the public sector job, well, now the the institution that the First Amendment covers is punishing you. For your politics, for your protected political speech, by by firing you, and now that is actually a a first amendment issue. So so I think that um, so I mean I I get why it sounds counterintuitive, but that would be uh, that would be my argument that actually uh, that actually you do have um, much more robust you know free speech uh, protections uh, within the public sector that as what I I think it should be. Right? I mean this is what people always argue about what is it, I might be getting the number wrong, but I think like section 230 of the uh, Communications Decency Act, which says that um, that you can't, um, basically you can't uh, sue like a social media company for, um, for, and there are also some other things that have come within the purview, but you know, in this example, you can't sue a social media company for what somebody posts on your platform because uh, they're not considered to be publishers who are making editorial decisions uh, they're considered to be like a neutral platform. it's like you can't sue the phone company for what somebody says in a phone call and um and so this is something that comes up periodically because people who are upset about censorship uh say, "Oh, see, they're acting like uh they're acting like a publisher now, so we should take away section two thirty so you can sue them, which you know I get where the impulse comes from, but then if you say that, then man, if you really want to open up the floodgates of censorship." <laughs> Uh, then, uh, then make it possible to sue the companies for what people say on their platform. Then censorship is going to be escalated to a to a degree that would be previously um, previously unimaginable. But if you do see it as a neutral platform, you do see it as to go back to that metaphor that I used earlier, more equivalent to like delivering the mail. Right, a mail delivery company should just be a neutral platform for you know for what whatever people want to send through the mail. Um, you know, maybe as long as it's not explosives or something, but I mean, if, you know, if the uh, they, the sort of content of what's written in the words uh, is should be none of their business. If you see it that way, then I think it does make more sense to sort of see it as a public utility and to sort of see safeguarding the neutrality of it as being secured by thinking of it as a public utility. Uh, I suspect you are not convinced, but I want to give you the last word on this before we uh, move on.
1: Yeah, look, I, I, to be honest, I don't agree with the library parallel because a library does not allow me to transmit my point of view to somebody else. It only allows me to read a selected list of books that the the government chooses to allow in there. So I think that that's, a, that's, a, that's not particularly relevant. The second thing is I would point out that there's a median position that you and I could take, which is to say, okay, maybe we create an, a nationalised alternative to Twitter that people can use in competition with all of the others, right? but the key thing that would have to happen in that platform if not others are the complete total and utter open sourcing of all of the control mechanisms and algos that run that platform so that people know where the shadow banning, uh, suppression, uh, how it's monitored, what the standards are, and what the definitions of free speech and the boundaries are. Because none of that's clearly defined in any of these private platforms, and that's why it's such a garbage service, because you can be blocked for anything with no idea what the rules are, whether that's Facebook or Twitter or any of the others. And that's what's missing. Nationalised or privatised, it doesn't matter. Really, people know nothing about the internal underpinning mechanics of it all. And without that, then all censorship is possible all the time. I mean, this, this point as well, just one thing. You're, you're right to say it doesn't really matter whether I'm talking about, say, I mentioned COVID or I mentioned Russiagate or Ukraine. The point of a pre, free, free speech platform would be that I could say what I want about anything. And it's up to somebody else to come along and either pay attention to it, ignore it, denigrate it, and us to have that debate. And what's happening here is that essentially we are um, navel-gazing to some extent over the simplicity of free speech absolutism. And we don't need to try to determine what the boundaries of it are okay to say about COVID or Ukraine. We simply need to have the infrastructure in place to say anything about anything because and I hate to quote Chris Nolan on this, but I think this is fair. The most dangerous thing in the world and the hardest thing to kill is an idea. The only way that you beat an idea once it's out there is with other ideas that are better. And the only thing you can do, the only way that you can do any of that is through the freedom of speech and you should never be afraid of other people's ideas. Sorry, I can't hear you. I was going to
0: say thank you for that call. Uh, I did say I'd let you have the last word, so I'm just going to leave it at that and people can sort of uh, see above, you know, for the uh, the parts I agree with and the parts I disagree with. But that was a, that was a thoughtful call. I liked it. Um, okay, so I am uh, – it's been a little over an hour. I am, I think, um, more or less going to cut it there for today. But I want to just say a couple of things before I uh, get off for uh, today. Uh, one of them is that uh, there is going to be a written version of some of this in Jacobin i'm not totally sure when but i i I filed the article last night, so uh if you you kind of want to see the the long form written version of of my take on all this uh do look out for that in in Jacobin i think the you know there's also another article that i've got kind of in the pipeline to publication there that has to do with the welfare reform stuff that I was talking about in the last call-in episodes. That's probably going to be first, but I think sometime this week, probably early in the week, you're going to see the Elon Musk uh, buying Twitter article where I say a lot of the stuff that I've been saying here. Um, And second is I am going to be um, doing another call-in, I think tomorrow. So we're not doing a regular episode of the main show on YouTube tomorrow uh, because Um, you know, it's, uh, it's Halloween, uh, and also because it's, um, you know, uh, frankly, because I've, I've got a writing deadline that I'm going to be racing to, uh, to meet that's already been moved a few times. Um, but I think I am going to try to sneak in a call in sometime over the course of the day. So do watch out for that. I will post, you know, a little in advance on Twitter, like always about when I'm going to do that. So, uh, I will, uh, I will see you guys then. Uh, I do want, um, to, um, I do want to see, uh, yeah, I, I do want to probably do one of these soon where it's a little bit more open-ended, you know, silver can call it to ask about S5 modal logic, you know, but we could, we could do a broader range of topics. Uh, the last couple have been very sort of tight, kind of like, I want to, I've got this thing I want to get through and once I've said it, I'll take a call or two at the end, but I do want to do one that's a little bit uh, more open-ended very soon. I don't know if that's going to be tomorrow or not. It might be, but in any case, I am going to uh, end it right there. So um, thank you everybody for, uh, uh, for, uh, you know, participating. Thank you Gator for,